Welcome, investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. Hey guys, this is episode two with Detective Lindsey Wade from the Tacoma Police Department. Fantastic discussion. Hope you enjoy. And they generated a complete, in his words, beautiful profile um, from this crusty blood vial. And so they actually were able to enter that profile into the Florida DNA database, which was fantastic, but it was not going to go into the national DNA database because of CODIS rules. So on one hand, I was super excited that, hey, you know, you found it, it's going in, but wait, stop. No, what do you mean it's not going to go into national? (laughs) Again, he was committing crimes all over the country. It's great that it's in Florida, but we know he committed crimes in other states besides Florida because he he, um, was not a convicted offender at the time his, his DNA was collected in Florida. He didn't qualify. And because he was no longer in custody in Florida, his DNA didn't qualify to go into the national database based on the CODIS rules. So I was like, okay, well, I'm not okay with that. <laughs> we've, we've got to, we've got to talk to somebody, um, at Ken, you know, and so he ended up meeting with the CODIS administrators for ENDIS and uh, the FBI and getting an approval to get his, to get Ted Bundy's DNA put into the national DNA database under the legal index. So he actually is not in the offender index. He's in the legal, but that's just semantics. It doesn't really matter at this point because his DNA is still searching against crime scene evidence um, that comes up into the national database from, from all the other States. So long story short. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that is so interesting. Uh, That's insane. It's like, you know, who cares if it's the, the offender? I mean, it's still searchable, right? It is searchable. And I guess, you know, the one thing that this did for me, it kind of, it opened my eyes to this reality that we have literally thousands of convicted murderers and rapists in our country that are not in CODIS. And um, once I kind of stumbled upon this, I started finding examples of this left and right, uh, not just in Washington, but all over the country. And now, um, you know, as a result of a lot of lobbying by Angela Williamson at the Department of Justice, we actually uh, have federal funding available through the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative to go for agencies, law enforcement agencies, to go out and collect DNA samples from these convicted offenders who should be in CODIS, but who slipped through the cracks. And I mean, I can name off, you know, a dozen cases off the top of my head of guys that were sitting in prison for decades that never had their DNA collected because they went in before the DNA laws took effect. And finally, when their DNA is collected, they hit to multiple cold cases. Um, Guys that were executed, you know, serial killers that died in prison or who were executed that never had their DNA collected. I mean, these guys are the guys that are the prime suspects in the the era of serial killing, you know, from the seventies 
uh, you know, late 60s, 1970s, and into the 80s. And these are the guys that are not in there because, you know, they've either died or, you know, they just somehow slipped through the cracks. So I'm so happy to see that um, law enforcement agencies around the country are finally recognizing that this is an issue and they're taking steps to collect these DNA samples to solve cold cases. Yeah, that is so amazing. Yeah. So I'm, I just think for, um, you know, anyone in the field who's listening to this, anyone in the criminal justice field that has anything to do with uh, working on, on cases, especially cold cases, I would challenge you to ask the question in, in your area and your state or your jurisdiction, you know, what do you know about DNA collection from convicted offenders? Because I can pretty much guarantee that if you start looking into it, you will be completely shocked and horrified by the gaps in the system. You know, as I mentioned earlier, there are, you know, all kinds of examples of uh, offenders around the country who literally have slipped through the cracks, um, who committed atrocious murders and sexual assaults and, you know, serial offenders. And, you know, some of these have come to light because of genetic genealogy cases that have been solved. Uh, and in, in other cases, um, you know, they've come to light for, you know, other reasons like, you know, the offender getting transferred to a different facility, things of that nature. But the bottom line is um, pretty much every state has the same issues. And that is an inconsistent methodology when it comes to collecting DNA from convicted offenders. Um, whether it's people who walk right out of the courtroom after getting a sentence for, you know, a felony or some other crime that requires DNA collection, and they never report to wherever they need to report to give their DNA, or, you know, somebody who, uh, you know, never gets their DNA collected when they're in jail or prison or, you know, where they were incarcerated. So, um, it, you know, it is a huge huge problem. And it's really a difficult problem to get a handle on. Um, when I was working at the Attorney General's office, we did have that sexual assault kit initiative grant that addressed uh, collecting DNA from convicted offenders. And so that's something that's still going on in Washington State currently, um, trying to get a handle on just how many there are, and then coming up with uh, ways to get the DNA collected. And of course, trying to do all of this in the middle of a global pandemic, which has been right. quite a challenge. You know, it's so interesting though, that when you think about how DNA has been around since the mid nineties mm -hmm. and CODIS has been around for a long time. And, you know, the, you can't be the first detective that, that has actually addressed this and, and all the way up to the FBI and said, you know what? It would be a really good idea if we would have a more robust uh, national database. And if they're convicted, convicted felons, they're supposed mm -hmm. to be in there anyway. You know, we're throwing money around like it's water up in Washington, D.C. You'd think some of it could get allocated. I mean, we're sending billions of dollars to Ukraine, which mm -hmm. is great. But at the same time, when we have a, a relatively simple process... It wouldn't take billions of dollars to, to remedy. It's like, what, what, why don't we have a, a robust 
DNA database. And it's like, no, to me, it seems like nobody really has this real sense of urgency to make sure that that's complete. And yet there's, there's hundreds of thousands of cold case homicides, let alone, you know, sexual assaults and, and other, uh, lesser crimes, if you will, but even, uh, assault with a, with a deadly weapon and sexual assaults, especially to me are just Mm -hmm. so heinous that if you're a convicted sex offender and your DNA isn't in the, the CODIS database, that's just criminal to me. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely frightening. Uh, but it, it absolutely is the case. Um, I don't know, you know, I mean, I, like I said, I, there's just, there's too many cases to even count um, examples of this occurring, but uh, you could do a whole separate episode just on lawfully owed DNA, um, you know, because it really is frightening. And, and, and I think the reason that um, maybe there hasn't been as much attention placed on this issue is because there's a sense of um, expectation by the public. And I think a lot of people within the criminal justice system that, well, CODIS has been around forever. So of course these people are in, are in there. And I don't think people don't really understand how CODIS works. They don't understand the different levels of CODIS. They don't understand that, you know, even though a DNA sample might be in a state database, it doesn't mean it's in a, the national database. And, and how does that affect your case and, and solvability and, you know, searching parameters? I mean, there are a lot of really intricate details that most um, you know, people within law enforcement are just not educated on. So I think it's so far into the weeds for most people that it, it, they would never even consider it. Well, can you summarize those really quick? <laughs> really or, quick? I, I, uh, is it so, is it so uh, detailed that it, it, it takes like a PhD to figure it out? Well, the, the problem is that every state has their own DNA law. So what might get you into CODIS in Washington may not be the same in Utah. So part well, of it- that doesn't make any sense. I mean, why, why isn't the national database uh, standard throughout? Because every state has their own DNA database. And every state determines um, the like the quality and the number of core loci required um, on any particular evidence sample or any um, convicted offender sample that is the, the threshold to be entered into that database. And in the state databases, the threshold is oftentimes lower to be entered into the state than in the national level. So. With that being said, that means you could have, let's give an example, you could have a, a rape homicide case that occurs here in Washington state, and maybe it's a cold case. And so the DNA is somewhat degraded and maybe they only have, you know, six core loci that they've identified from the crime scene evidence. It's enough to put it into the state database, but that's not enough to go into national. So that evidence sample is not gonna be searching at the national level against convicted offender, that convicted offender that might've committed the crime who lives in New Hampshire, whose DNA might've been collected in New Hampshire and put into the state and the national database but because that evidence sample only sits at the state database, it's never going to hit on the Washington case. 
Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and I think most of my listeners, uh, understand, uh, I mean, we've, we've gone, we've gone over DNA, you know, multiple times, but, uh, just so, just so people know, first of all, a loci, what, uh, Lindsay's talking about is, um, there are basically 24 loci, which is kind of, if you, if you can visualize a heart monitor, the way it's got little blips on there, every time the heart contracts, uh, it, it, you have this peak. And so that's kind of the equivalent of what a loci would look like. So if you have a really strong loci, it's like your heartbeat, um, being stronger. And so that peak is a little higher and there's 24 specific places along the DNA strand that people look at. And, and that's how the crime lab is able to say, yes, this is Lindsay Wade's DNA versus over here is Jared Bradley's DNA. And there, the loci and where those blips and where those peaks are going to be are in very different places. I mean, some might overlap, but for the most part, it's going to be, it's going to be very unique to one individual. And the stronger those peaks, the stronger the profile. And that's where they can get that ratio of, you know, there's one chance in a trillion that it's not Jared Bradley's DNA. As you have more and more loci, then the DNA profile itself is stronger. Therefore, it can be entered and qualify for different databases. And, and that's kind of what you're talking about, right? Yes. Okay. Well, and it's, I, I, think, I think a lot of people have a general understanding of that, but like you said, there's so many different um, rules, which is, right. which is understandable. I mean, you can't just arbitrarily enter somebody's DNA into a database, you know, right. especially the constitution protects them from, you know, the illegal searches and seizures and that's, you know, which is awesome. But at the same time, if they're a convicted felon, uh, geez, you know, let's do what we got to do. Right. Uh, <laughs> but then that's, that's where the other challenging piece uh, comes in because every state is different when it comes to which crimes qualify for DNA collection, not only the crime type, but also the year the crime was committed. So uh, as an example, in Washington state, the first DNA law took effect July 1st, 1990. And that was only for violent offenses uh, and sex, sexual offenses. So there were, it was a very small number of crimes that qualified for DNA collections. Basically, it was violent felonies and, and sex crimes. And then, you know, over the years, the, the DNA law has been expanded. So when you're looking to figure out who actually owes DNA, you, you literally have to go line by line on criminal history for each person and figure out, okay, this crime, even though it qualifies for DNA collection today, did it actually qualify for DNA collection at the time the person was convicted for that crime? Because 2002 was when all felonies became DNA qualifying offenses in Washington state. And then Washington also, I think we're up to like 13 gross misdemeanors that require DNA collection upon conviction. But that has been, you know, as the, you know, various legislative sessions and different laws have 
have gone into effect, those laws have, have, have changed, but you have to be very careful to look at the year of the conviction and the actual date of the conviction. You can't just say, yep, if you were ever convicted of, you know, whatever the crime was, um, stalking, harassment, uh, voyeurism, you know, there's uh, indecent exposure. We just got that one added a couple of years ago. Um, you know, you can't say, well, if you got convicted of indecent exposure in 2005, your DNA can go in because it can't. It only, you know, counts if it was, you know, since the new law took effect in 2019. So it is very complicated. And when, uh, you know, your average detective is looking at somebody's criminal history, they might see that the person was convicted of all kinds of crimes and think, gosh, this person's DNA, you know, should be encoded because they've been convicted of like murder and, you know, rape and stuff, but they may not be in CODIS. And also when you review criminal histories, there are very few states that put the DNA um, status of someone on their criminal history. So it takes a lot of legwork to then contact your state CODIS administrator, if you even know who that is, and find out this is my person and is, you know, can you confirm whether or not their DNA is in CODIS? So based on that, how many detectives do you think really, well, let, let, let me backtrack. So a lot of the detectives that I have met kind of defer everything DNA mm -hmm. to not, I mean, some of it, they just kind of defer to the, the crime scene investigators, but most of it, they just kind of defer to the lab. Mm -hmm. And I have found that a lot of lab people are fantastic. They, uh, they, they not only, uh, truly want to help and truly want to solve, help the detectives solve the crime, but some are just kind of like, you know what, I'm here to do my job and I work nine to five and then I go home and, uh, you know, they have such a huge backlog anyway, mm -hmm. that doing extra things like what you're talking about, it's, it's not that it's, it's not that they won't do it, but some of them just don't take the, um, initiative really yeah. to, to go about and, and proactively work and, and with the detectives to help solve some of these crimes. Have, have you ever run into that? Yeah. I mean, it's not really their job to do that. So um, yeah, I mean, and based on the things that you just said, um, I mean, I, I would find it highly unusual for someone at the lab to like call up a detective and say, hey, let's resubmit the evidence on your case, you know, because we've got some new technology or whatever. I mean, that's very rare because they are slammed and they're completely overworked and overwhelmed and, you know, they have few resources and especially with the, um, you know, sexual assault kit reform that's occurred across the country. Um, most crime labs are just inundated with, um, you know, the, the sexual assault kit backlog. So even trying to keep up with their day-to-day -day cases that, that uh, are coming in, it's extremely difficult and they're, they're woefully understaffed. Oh yeah. Oh, it's amazing. That, in fact, I, I think the, the same kind of public uproar 
that occurred once once the news started hitting that there were thousands of uh, sexual assault kits just sitting on shelves that had gone untested for years. Mm-hmm. I think that same, if people really knew the status of our crime labs um, and kind of, like you said, the underfunding, and I, th- I think the entire justice system as a whole compared to the billions of dollars and, you know, just obscene amount of money that we throw at some of the other social programs. The fact that we have labs that have years of backlog. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think if the public really knew they, they, the same kind of uproar that would happen with those sexual assault kits would happen, right. you know, everywhere. And, and then the, the proper amount of funding would get allocated. And, you know, maybe this is the start of something we ought to start contacting our, our congressmen and, and women and, and saying, Hey, get the, get some of these crime labs and, and police departments, the funding that they need so that they can solve these cases. And it's, yeah. you know, when I, I've, I've had um, multiple episodes where I've talked about the, the fact that there's like what, 230,000 cold case homicides, they're unsolved. Mm-hmm. And most people have no idea that that is a crazy number. And yep. then you extrapolate that out to the fact that if, if none of those are real like serial killings, then that's the, the possibility that there's 230,000 uh, unconvicted murderers walking the streets. That's when people go like, Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, I know. And with the sexual assault kit, being tested and, you know, look, looking at the, the stats and the numbers coming out of the, the, you know, national sexual assault kit initiative, you can see that the numbers are still relatively slim for the number of cases that produce a code of hit. And so then it begs the question, why for the cases that do produce a DNA profile that is suitable and eligible to be entered into CODIS with no hit, what happens to those cases and why is there no hit? Now there may be no hit because the person that committed the crime truly never got convicted of any qualifying offense, or it could be that they slipped through the cracks and their DNA was never collected as it should have been. Right. So, you know, but you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And that's another thing is people need to understand in order to make a match, you have to have two DNA profiles, Mm -hmm. one from the evidence and one from the individual. And I think what you're talking about is a lot of the times, especially when you have all these convicted felons that are sitting in prison and net or died or whatever that never got entered into the database. When you, when you develop a good profile from the evidence, you then have to have something to compare it to. And if, if the DNA isn't collected from all these guys that are sitting in prison when, and I I don't know what the exact percentage is, but it has to be fairly high of, you know, it's not like one crime, one individual, the majority of crime is being committed or uh, committed. If I could talk this morning by a relatively small amount of the population and You, you can, I, so in your experience, how many crimes did one individual on average, I don't know if you even 
have ever even thought about this, but if, if you thought of, of like, say, homicides that you've investigated, how many of those homicides were actually committed by the same person? Few. I mean, when you're talking about more serious crime, in my personal experience, uh, you know, I had very few where I had multiple offenders linked or one offender linked to multiple homicides. But with sex crimes, it was a little more common to have one offender linked to multiple sex crimes. And of course, it's also very common to have, you know, an, one offender linked to a homicide, but has convictions for, you know, multiple convictions for property crimes, um, drug possession and burglaries. Uh, those are very common. In fact, most of the DNA hits uh, that are made, at least in Washington, to murder and rape cases, they come from offenders that got into the database because their DNA was collected for a nonviolent crime, like a drug offense or um, a property crime. Yeah, and that totally makes sense. Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.